Well, if you have your Bibles with you, again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 12. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 574. If you're a guest with us, we've spent the summer working through the beginning of the book of Psalms, and today is our last day in the Psalms, and next week we'll begin a new study. And I pray that uh, you have grown over the summer to love the book of Psalms as much as I've grown to love it over the past few years. As one author wrote, there's a sigh for every soul in the Psalms. And they are so relevant to our lives as I think you'll see again this morning. And I'm going to speak today for a few minutes on this subject, when the faithful vanish. Psalm 12. And this is what the Word of God says. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as violence is exalted among the children of man. Psalm 12 is about the power of words. Words used by the wicked and words spoken by God. From the lips of a courageous leader like Winston Churchill, words can inspire, they can challenge, and they can lift people to times of extraordinary greatness. But from the lips of a wicked leader such as Adolf Hitler, they can sweep the world into destruction and devastation. Now, we don't know the circumstances that surrounded David writing Psalm 12. However, we do know that David entrusted this psalm of lament to the choir master so that the entire community and future generations would hear and sing these words. So they would take them to heart and they would learn to express their perplexity and their anguish and their discouragement during times of overwhelming circumstances, while at the same time expressing confident hope and trust in their compassionate and faithful God. In Psalm 12, David recognized the sobering reality of what happens to a society when its foundations are destroyed. The once God-fearing society in which David lived previously built upon the moral absolutes of God's law was now crumbling from within. 
and in its place a culture built on pagan beliefs and secular humanism was becoming the prevailing worldview. And godly people such as David were finding themselves in the minority. And as David looked around, he observed the righteous diminishing. He observed society disintegrating. He observed truth crumbling, and he observed sin flourishing. And in this hour of national decadence, David did what all believers must do. He turned to God for help, and he trusted in God's promises. And in so doing, he found the grace and the strength that he needed to press on. In a world in which deception and flattery and fraud and propaganda and duplicity and dishonesty dominate at every level, David models for us in Psalm 12 how to depend upon God and His Word when the faithful vanish. Would you note with me four sections in this psalm? And the first thing I want you to see is found in verse number 1, where we see the discouragement of the faithful. He writes in verse 1, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Psalm 12 begins with a desperate cry for help. David exclaims, Save, O Lord. And this is a helpful prayer, and it's a helpful way to begin this psalm in the midst of national tragedy. For only the Lord can save David, and only the Lord can save you, and only the Lord can save me. And so it is appropriate in this time of emergency that David would begin this psalm by saying, Save, O Lord. The word save carries the sense of help, deliverance, being set free, or liberating. And it's normally followed with an object, so you would see it normally written this way, save me. And the language that David uses suggests that his cry is never finished. It's, it's the cry of a person who is drowning, who continually cries out, help, 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 until rescue comes. And that's the idea behind David's cry of exclamation in the beginning of this psalm. Save me, O Lord. Help me, O Lord. His cry is in the imperative. It conveys an urgency. David is in need of immediate rescue and deliverance. And you'll notice in verse number one that the urgency of David's request concerns the apparent disappearance of the godly and the vanishing of the faithful from the land. He actually uses the phrase godly one to refer to those who've received God's covenant love and respond to God and to others in that same kind of faithful love. And he refers to the faithful as those who are reliable and trustworthy, those who are faithful to keep their commitments. They honor their God by trusting in Him and serving Him from their heart. They honor their relationships with others through loyalty and trustworthiness and integrity and dependability. And David cries out for God to save him and to help him because everywhere he looks in his culture, he sees that the godly are disappearing. He sees that the faithful and the trustworthy and the loyal are vanishing. 
And I want you to note this morning in this text that when godliness disappears, faithfulness inevitably follows. They're directly connected. And from David's perspective, it seems as if the godly remnant of faithful believers was growing smaller and smaller, and they were fading from the scene, going into extinction. And as a result, David finds himself feeling isolated and lonely, as if he's the only faithful one left in the land. And friends, in times of discouragement and difficulty and darkness, it is really easy to convince yourself that you're all alone. When you're discouraged, it is really easy to believe that you're the only faithful one left. Haven't you felt that way before? Maybe some of you are feeling that way this very moment this morning. The Bible is full of these stories and accounts. Did you remember in 1 Kings chapter 19, after a tremendous victory on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, Elijah thought he was the only faithful prophet left, and he became depressed, and he went and he hid, and he isolated himself in a cave. And the Lord came to Elijah while he was in that cave, and he began to question him. And Elijah expressed his discouragement to God. And this is what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Can't you hear his words? And I, even I only am left, Lord. I'm the only faithful one left. All of the godly and the faithful are gone. Elijah felt the way David felt. The prophet Micah was also discouraged of the devastation of the land in his day. And he cried out in lament over what he was seeing and experiencing in Micah chapter 7. And listen to his words. I'll try to point a few things out to you in the first six verses of Micah chapter 7. They're powerful. It's as if we were reading the front page of the newspaper this morning through Micah's words. And this is how he begins. Listen to his cry. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind they all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net do you hear it there's no godly left there's no faithful left i'm the only one god i'm the only one verse three their hands are on what is evil to do it well the prince and the judge ask for a bribe and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul and thus they weave it all together, and the best of them is like a briar, the utmost of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come, and now their confusion is at hand. Now listen to verses 5 and 6, and tell me if he's not describing our world. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. I'm alone, God. I'm the only one left. 
But I want you to understand this morning that discouragement blinds us to reality. Discouragement makes us think everything looks worse than it actually is. And that's where David begins in this psalm. But as he desperately cries out to the Lord, his discouragement will be replaced with hope. A hope that comes from trusting in God and his word. And you remember Elijah that I just referenced a few moments ago. Elijah reminded, was reminded by the Lord that he was not alone. Listen to what God said to Elijah when he was in the cave and restoring him in 1 Kings 19.18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Do you hear that? Elijah, you think you're all alone. Lift your eyes up and look around you. I've got a remnant of 7,000 people who've not capitulated. They're with you. You're not alone. Micah, after crying out in despair over the decadence in his land, testifies this in Micah chapter 7 and verse 7. But as for me... I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and my God will hear me. Elijah was called to look to the Lord and to see his faithfulness and how he had provided a remnant for him. Micah was turned to the Lord and in the Lord he found his hope and his trust and his confidence in his salvation. And the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, sitting in a pit, in prison, testifying of God's faithfulness. He described how everyone in his life had abandoned him, but the Lord was faithful. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. At my first events, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Even though Paul was alone in the prison and everyone had deserted him, he was not alone. He knew that God was with him. Moses' final words to Joshua and all Israel... Remind us that if we belong to God, no matter how bad things get, we will never be alone. Did you hear that, church? No matter how bad things get, you will never be alone if you belong to God. And this is what Moses said to Joshua and the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be in dread. Be strong. Be courageous. It's the Lord your God, your covenant-keeping, loving, faithful God who goes before you. And He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And I'll remind you this morning that if you belong to God, no matter how bad this world gets, no matter how bad things get in your life, no matter how brokenhearted you become, you will never be alone. 
If you are the only student in your school who is walking with God, will you continue to walk with Him and follow Him and serve Him no matter what? If you are the only Christian employee in your workplace, will you continue to stand up for God and live for Him and follow Him no matter what it costs you, no matter what it takes? Will you stand if you're the only one? Because when you stand in courage, you'll never be alone. God will be with you. We not only see the discouragement of the faithful, in verses 2 through 4, we see the deception of the wicked. David says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. While the godly and the faithful have decreased, David says in verses 2 through 4 that the wicked have increased. And in these verses, David describes the social trend that was taking place in the culture around him. And did you notice carefully in verses 2 through 4 what the cultural trend was centered on? Speech. It was centered around speech. And David's assessment of the culture in this social trend was that ethical and moral behavior, particularly truthful, wholesome speech, had vanished from society and people were using their words to advance their own evil agendas. Sound familiar? Sound relevant? In verse 2, David says the culture was marked by deceit because everyone, look at the text, everyone spoke with flattering lips and a double heart, uttering lies to their neighbor. And he describes their language as lies. It literally means their, their words were empty. They were vain. They were insincere. There was no truth behind them. That all the conversations that were taking place were utterly worthless. They were full of lies. And then he builds on the next description, and he says that they spoke with flattering lips. It refers to smooth talk, to insincere praise. It's being glib with your words and the way you carry yourself. It refers to conversation that is deadly. It's people saying what they think other people want to hear. And these flattering lips, they go beyond the emptiness of the lies because in these flattering lips, they contain the element of a corrupt and evil motive. That people are flattering others to get something out of them, to deceive them and to cheat them. So it's full of empty talk. It's full of smooth talk. And it reminds us of what Proverbs 26, 28 says. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. When you lie, you hate. When you flatter, you bring destruction. And then he climaxes in verse number 2 with the third description of their speech. A double heart. It literally translates a heart and a heart. It means that they're divided, that there are two different intentions that what they say sounds flattering and good, but there's another heart at work behind those flattering words intending something totally different. Its aim is to deceive. 
And according to David, he's surrounded by smooth, empty speech, full of calculated words spoken from a double heart to manipulate and control others for evil purposes. But he's not finished. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, David describes the wicked speech as boastful, that they have great boasts. This is the example of the pride in their lives. They lie, they flatter, they deceive, and then they boast about their accomplishments. And then in verse 4, David summarizes their thinking and their actions, stating in their pride they make three claims, and I'm lifting this straight from the text of Scripture. They say, first of all, with our tongue we'll prevail. And what they mean by that is that the ends justify the means. That it's okay for them to lie and to flatter and deceive because what they gain from doing all of that is worth it. The ends justify the deceit. Secondly, they say our lips are with us. We have the right to say anything that we want to. And number three, they ask the question, who is master over us? And when they ask that question, here's what they're literally saying. We don't answer to anyone. No one has authority over us. Who in the world can hold us accountable for our words and our actions? We are allowed to do what we think is right in our own eyes. The Old Testament scholar Delich says that if any authority were to assert itself over them, their mouth would put it down and their tongue would thrash it into submission. They firmly believed that their lips belonged to them, that they had the right to say what they wanted and answer to no one. And when such arrogance is joined with deception, there is no limit to the destruction that can follow. In our world, their words would be their weapon and social media would be their tool. This is the culture in which David found himself. Now notice what happens in verse number 3. In the midst of this moral and spiritual collapse, David cries out to God. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. And this phrase cut off takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 14 and the threat that any unfaithful covenant person would be cut off from the remnant. And what David is crying out to God and asking him to do is to deal with the wicked and their deceitful words and their schemes. David realized that they were a threat to the stability of society. And David literally asked God to destroy the wicked, to hold them accountable, to deal with them swiftly, and to cut them off. Do you ever pray a prayer like that? David did. Did you know that the Old Testament book of Proverbs devotes a significant portion of its teaching to promoting healthy, honest speech versus society-destroying foolish speech, including lying, gossip, slander, and flattering? In fact, Solomon says that one of the things that God hates the most is a false witness who brings out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 6, 19. God hates that kind of speech. James reminds us in his book in the New Testament that our tongues have the power to direct. And he describes in James chapter 3 how a small rudder controls a large sailing vessel. 
And he uses that as an analogy of how our tongue is one of the smallest members of our body, but it has so much power, it can direct the course of our life and direct the course of the lives of others. And friends, you know that is true because harsh words have been spoken to you before and they've crushed you and you've struggled to get over it. The tongue has the power to direct. But James also tells us in James chapter 3 that the tongue has the poison to destroy. That this small member on our body can be so full of poison that it destroys. And James also tells us in James chapter 3 that our tongue has the possibility to delight. That with our tongue we can curse our brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God and then turn right around and offer and sing our praises to the Lord. That we can be double-minded in the way that we use our tongue. And in the middle of all of these descriptions of our tongue and our words in James chapter 3 and verse 6, James says this. He says, And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. And the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That is how powerful ungodly words and speech are. They're devastating. They set the world on fire. They set families on fire. They set marriages on fire. They set churches on fire. And in a world full of sinful speech and deceitful motives, the Apostle Paul reminds us that if we're Christians, if we belong to God, we should talk differently. Our faith should be reflected in our speech. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members with one another. Speak the truth. It's the opposite of what was happening in David's culture. It's the opposite of what is happening in our culture. If you're a Christian, speak the truth to your neighbor. Love them enough to tell them the truth. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, he says it this way. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. No corrupting talk. Give grace to those you're talking to by the words that you say and the kind of speech that you use. You want to change the culture? You want to change the world? Change the way you talk. Start there. One of the evidences of grace in my life when I got right with Jesus Christ is I lost, as Spurgeon said, half my vocabulary. It changed. It changed. And then it so changed me that I didn't want to be a kind, around the kind of vocabulary that I had been speaking. And I lost friends over it because I would challenge them about the way they were talking. In taking the Lord's name in vain. There's a difference. You tell me that you're saved and on your way to heaven. You tell me that you're sanctified. I ask you, are you talking differently than the culture? How are you talking to your wife behind closed doors, sir? 
How are you talking to your children? How are you talking to your coworker? When we not only see the discouragement of the faithful and the deception of the wicked, in verse number 5, we see the declaration of the Lord. He says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Something significant happens in verse number 5. This is the first time in the book of Psalms where a psalm contains an answering oracle from the Lord. In the first four verses, David has been speaking to God. And now, in verse number 5, God speaks to David. And God assures David in verse number 5 that he will act. And what happens here in verse number 5 is similar to what happens in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24. And in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24, the Bible says that God heard the sighs and the cries of his people over the punishment from Pharaoh, that he saw what was happening to them, and he heard them, and God acted on their behalf. And notice what he says here in verse number 4. God says that he sees the plundering of the poor, and he sees the groaning of the needy, and he will respond to their sufferings, and he will relieve them. But now you need to notice something careful in the text. You'll miss it if you read it too fast. The emphasis of this verse is not on immediacy. The emphasis is on certainty. Look at what he says. I've seen the plundering of the poor. I've heard the groaning of the needy. And now I will arise. The word now emphasizes a decisive turning point. That God is now moving from forbearance and patience to deliverance. And arise gives a picture of God taking action like a warrior who's standing up and getting ready to go to battle. And I love how Spurgeon describes God's language in this text. This is what he says. Nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. He rouses himself. Listen to this. He wakes up his manhood. He overthrows the enemy and he sets his beloved in safety. A puff is too much for the child to bear and the foe is so haughty that he laughs the little one to scorn. But the father comes and then it is the child's turn to laugh when he is set above the rage of his tormentor. Do you see it? The world is laughing. The world is scoffing. The world is thumbing its nose at God and his followers. And the righteous feel that they're all alone and they're crying out. And Lord, I'm the only faithful one left. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And God says, I see. I hear. I'm getting up. And I'm getting ready to deal with it. And when he does, those who scorn and mock, and cause trouble, will no longer be laughing. They will be held in derision by God. So I have a simple question to ask you this morning. Don't brush it off. It's important. Do you believe 
God sees? Do you believe he sees you? Do you believe he sees your circumstances? Do you believe he sees your pain? Your suffering? Your heartache? Do you believe he hears? Your cries? Your struggles? Your exclamation for help? Do you believe he'll act? Do you believe he'll act? Oh, friend, it's one thing to say that you believe. It's another thing to say you believe when you feel heaven is silent. He hears. He sees. He knows it all. You know what Malachi says? In Malachi chapter 3, you know what Malachi says? He says God's writing it all down. He's keeping a record of it. He knows it all. And he is going to act. He declares, I will rise on your behalf. When we not only see the discouragement of the faithful and the deception of the wicked in the declaration of the Lord, finally, in verses 6 through 8, we see the deliverance of the Lord. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as violence is exalted among men and among the children of man. In the last three verses of this psalm, David expresses his confidence in the word of the Lord. And David contrasts a truth-twisting society with a truth-speaking God. He describes the purity of God's words in verse 6 with the image of silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. He says God's word is pure like silver when it has been heated and all of the dross rises to the surface and it's scraped off. The word pure that he uses conveys the idea of something being ceremonially clean. It has no flaws. It has no defects of any kind. He's saying that God's word is clear. God's word is direct. God's word is true. And God's word is reliable. And David described God's word this way in Psalm 19, verses 8 and 9. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, it enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do you hear these descriptions? They're right, they're pure, they're clean, they're true, they're righteous. The Word of God brings rejoicing, the Word of God brings enlightening, the Word of God endures. There's power in the Word of God. I believe that David wrote Psalm 119. And this is what David says in Psalm 119, verses 150 and 151. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. Now listen to 151. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Do you see what's happening to him? I'm the only one left, God. I'm the only one left. 
The society is falling apart. David, I know, I hear, I see. I'm going to arise. Oh God, your word is true. Your word is pure. Your word is right. Your word is clean. They're all surrounding me, God, but I'm drawing near to you and I'm finding comfort and strength from your word. Psalm 119 in verse 160. Listen to what David testifies. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum, the totality of your word, God, only one thing can describe it. It's true. And in this world that's falling apart, God, I've got truth. That's what he's saying. That's why Paul said to Timothy and to us, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. That's why you need the Bible. That's why you don't need feel-good sermons and teaching. That's why you don't need a show. That's why you don't need a concert. It's why you need the Word. Because if you don't have the Word, you don't get correction. You don't get reproof. You don't get teaching. You don't get training. You don't become more righteous. You don't become more godly without the Word. And I want you to know this morning that God's Word is completely accurate. And that everything that it teaches is proper and right. And that everything it promises is sure, as if it's already happened. And you may not always like what the Word of God says, but the Word of God will always, 100% of the time, tell you the truth that you need to hear. And in a world that is full of lies and flattering lips and double-minded talk, you need truth. And the Word of God is true. In verse 7, David speaks with confidence. Look at how he begins verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. What will he keep? His word. Everything that he said, he'll keep. You, O Lord, will keep them. You'll keep every single one of your words. And then look what he says in verse 7. And you will guard and preserve your people from this generation. You'll keep your word. You'll guard your people. You'll preserve them. And how long will God do this? Look at the text. Forever. Forever. If you belong to Him, you belong to Him forever. You can never be lost from His hand if you are His. And verse 7, do you see what is happening? Verse 7 is a response of faith to verses 5 and 6. And David is responding in faith to the truth that God will arise and guard and preserve his people. And David is responding in faith to the purity and the certainty and the surety of the word of God. I'll remind you of what David said in Psalm 18 and verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. You wonder why God's allowing the world to happen the way it is. You're wondering why something is happening in your life the way it is. 
You're questioning the goodness of God. You're questioning uh, the ways of God. David says to you that the God that you serve, the God that you know, his way is perfect. You have no right to question him. He is perfect in everything that he does. And everything that he does, listen, it proves true. And he is a shield to everyone who will find refuge in him. Refuge in him. There's confidence for deliverance in him. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do you believe that, friends? Every single word. All of it. Proves true. And you have a refuge in this God. He'll never abandon you. He'll never forsake you. You're safe in him. In verse 8. The psalm ends as it began. Look, on every side, the wicked prowl as violence is exalted among the children of man. Here's what I want you to notice about verse number 8. David's circumstances have not changed. If anything, the situation has grown worse. He says the wicked are prowling on every side and the godly and the faithful have vanished and vileness is exalted among the children of man. What does he mean by vileness? It literally means that which is cheap and that which is worthless and that which is full of shameful excess. Derek Kidner, who is a great scholar on Psalms and Proverbs. He says that the language of verse 8 suggests that they're not prowling around. They're walking openly in their vileness. They're walking openly. And David, in verse 8, sees a culture that exalts and promotes immorality. He sees a culture that exalts and promotes brutality and lawlessness and murder and lies and drunkenness and the abuse of power and political corruption at every single level. It's just exalting. It's just getting more and more and the faithful and the godly are vanishing and it's less and less and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And though David's circumstances haven't changed, I want you to notice in verse 8 that David has changed. David is no longer crying out to God for help. David has heard the word of God and he believes it and he's resting on it. You say, how do you know that? Because he said that whatever the wicked may say or whatever they may do, God will keep his word and God will guard his people to the very end. And David believed it. It was his confidence. That no matter what happened in his life, no matter what happened in his culture, God would guard his people, God would keep his word, God would preserve them to the end. Do you know that that is the same posture that the Lord Jesus Christ had when he lived on earth? Peter describes how Jesus lived and the confidence that he had in his Father. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did he do? 
he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly, his father. And do you know what Peter says after that? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly so that he could die for your sins and for the sins of the world so he could rescue you in your wondering and your disobedience and your waywardness from God and bring you back into the fold and be the shepherd over your soul that you need. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. What was David's confidence? And what was Jesus' confidence? Friends, it needs to be your confidence. It needs to be my confidence. Here's the reality. God guards us. And God preserves us. But we still live in a world of darkness. And we still live in a world of deception. And because God guards us. And God preserves us. And God fulfills His word and His promises. We press on. We press on. We sing on. We preach on. We work on. We remain faithful and obedient in the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the decay, knowing where our help comes from and that we have a refuge and a safety. We can expect the wicked to act wickedly. We can expect what is worthless to be exalted. We can expect God to act by keeping His Word, guarding His people, and bringing them to safety. God's Word is dependable. God's Word is reliable. God's Word can be trusted. God's Word must be valued. And God's Word must be believed. And friend, you can lean on His promises. Promises like Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Do you believe that? That God is powerful enough to redeem your life from your sin and your destruction? And to remove all condemnation from you through the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? How about Psalm 46, 10? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. Lift your eyes to the hills. He's on the throne. He'll be exalted. He will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Or how about Psalm 94, 14? For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will never abandon his heritage. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. You are not alone. I love what Michael Wilcox said in his commentary on Psalms. He said, the true shows up the false. And scripture, which is God speaking, is guaranteed true. Listen. And those who preach from the Scripture have the inestimable privilege of showing the way things really are. That's it. You know one of the reasons why you need to come to church and hear the Word of God preached in its fullness, not watered down with clarity and conviction? 
Because you get to hear how things really are. And the reality of this world is that the devil is not winning. He is a tool in the hands of the omnipotent God. And he is on his throne and that is reality. And God's word is pure and certain and reliable and true. You can take your life on it. You can stake your eternity on it. He'll deliver you. And if that's true, if God's word is pure, if God's word is true, then God's people must read it. God's people must study it. God's people must memorize it. God's people must hear it. God's people must trust it. God's people must live by it. And God's people must share it. Because deliverance is coming. We live in the world described in Psalm 12. So how do the godly live in a godless society? Well, Psalm 12 reminds us to fix our gaze upon the Lord, to cry out to Him for help, to pray to Him for justice, to remain faithful to Him even if you're all alone, to believe His promises, to trust His Word, and to rest in Him for your safety, for your protection, and for your deliverance. For only God's Word can make you strong in your faith and enable you to live a holy life in a godless culture. In this psalm, David models for every single one of us how to depend upon God in his word when the faithful vanish. Let's pray.